Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part one of his teaching on the priorities of heaven. This morning, I want to talk to you about the priorities of heaven. Amen. We've already got the amen corner going back there. That's awesome. (laughs) Hallelujah. The priorities of heaven, part one. I think there's going to be at least a part two, maybe more. But praise God. Years ago, when I was preparing to go preach in Tanzania, Africa, I asked the Lord to give me a message, and I was reading through the book of John, and in the first five chapters of John, the Lord just unfolded to me five priorities of heaven that were embedded in the first five chapters of the book of John, either figuratively or literally in the gospel of John. And so I'll start out by saying this. If you want to know the priorities of heaven, you need to know the priorities of the God of heaven. And to know the priorities of the God of heaven, you need to know what God is really like. You need to get to know him a little bit better. So with that in mind, let's begin by reading from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So everything in the universe that we can see was made by and through God's agent of creation called the Word. This person called the Word was what theologians call the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Jesus, who existed with the Father throughout eternity as the Word of God before He took on flesh and became Jesus. Amen? That Word was responsible for creating the space-time reality that we all enjoy. Amen? I love the opportunity to get to use those words, space-time, amen? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 in the Amplified make this gloriously, abundantly clear. It says, In many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in different ways God spoke of old to our forefathers in and by the prophets. But in the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the worlds and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. I'm sorry, i got to take a pause and say, Amen. That's awesome. Verse 3 says, He is the soul, talking about the Word, who became Jesus. He is the sole, single, solitary, lone, unique, exclusive expression of the glory of God. The light being, the outraying or radiance of the divine. And He is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, scientists today, they know that the universe is expanding, but they don't really know why. Well, we know why. 
It's being guided and propelled and hurled outward by the mighty word of God's power. Amen. Hallelujah. It's Jesus who put that in motion. Amen. The same Jesus we know and love. Hallelujah. He was the agent of creation. He's responsible for space time and gravity and Einstein's relativity and all that cool stuff. So in the last days, I missed it, must have been good. So in these last days, God, the scripture says, God has chosen to speak to us through the person of a son. The same person who was previously called the word, who came to earth as a statement of what God was really like. I like to say it like this. The life and ministry of Jesus was the will of God expressed in human form. Jesus was the will of God in action. I like to say it like this. Jesus was the will of God turned loose on planet earth. Glory to God. John chapter 1 verse 14. This word that we just talked about in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 the one that was in the beginning with God, the one that was God, this same word became flesh. It says so here in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. So the disciples are saying here in the Bible, the one who was the word in the fullness of time became flesh, and we got to know him. We got to see what God was really like. We touched him. We handled him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We knew him intimately. So we got a firsthand view of what God was really like through the word of God become flesh. Amen. Going down to verse 18, and it says, No man has seen God at any time. John said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The Amplified says, He has revealed Him and brought Him out where He can be seen. He has interpreted Him and He has made Him known. Amen. Hallelujah. So I just want to clear something up. The first part of this verse says, no man has seen God at any time. And there are many Christians that I've come across who misinterpret this scripture to say that testimonies of being taken to heaven or seeing Jesus or seeing the Father are a lie because it says no man has seen God at any time. But how many know you got to consider the whole counsel of God to know what God is saying here? Amen? There are many Christians uh, that have seen Jesus. There are many that have seen the Father. There are many that have been taken to heaven and come back to tell us what it's like. Amen. It's not that uncommon. Amen. So clearly, John does not mean that no man has literally seen God. And let me go through some scriptural examples and some personal examples to make the point. Moses saw God face to face, Exodus 33:11. Isaiah saw him sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. Ezekiel stood by the river Kevar, 
and saw visions of God, Ezekiel 1.1. Paul was taken to heaven, and some of the things he heard and saw, he wasn't even allowed to talk about. Amen. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 through 4. John himself, the one who wrote the words, no man has seen God at any time. John himself later wrote that he had been taken to heaven and saw God sitting on a great white throne. That's Revelation 20, verse 11. In my own life, in April of 1985, Jesus appeared to me in a vision and helped me break free of horrifying demonic nightmares that plagued me since I was a child. In March 20th, 2005, I was praying in tongues one night in my bed and I was caught up in the spirit and found myself in a dream and a vision standing before the great white throne of the Father God. I saw his form clearly. May 13th, 2014, Jesus appeared to me again in a vision. He walked into my bedroom and he talked to me about the value of my marriage. And finally, October 18th, 2017, Jesus appeared to me, this time in a dream, on a golf course and encouraged me to finish my course and fulfill my calling. Amen. It wasn't that no one had seen God at the time John refers to in his gospel, but no one had seen him as he really was. A God that was so in love with his creation that he was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son to rescue mankind from destruction. So Jesus was more than just a revelation of the Father to mankind. He actually became one of us so we could see what God was really like. Amen. And so he could relate to what it was like to be human. We forget about that side of the equation. Some people have said to me, well, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. He's Jesus. I'm telling you, there's a time where Jesus was so depressed that he wanted to die. Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus said, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. We would say it like this. I'm so depressed, I just want to die. So don't ever say Jesus doesn't understand what you're going through because he understands. He's been human. He is human. He's 100% human, and yet he's 100% God. He understands. He knows what it's like to be human. Amen. So when you go to him, he says, I know I've been through it. I've been through it. And since I've been through it, I can get you through it. Amen. Glory to God. Somebody here needed to hear that. Hallelujah. So John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9 in the Amplified, the context is the disciples are having a conversation with Jesus about the Father. So picking it up at verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Cause us to see the Father. That is all we ask. Then we shall be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you, all of you, for so long a time? And do you not recognize and know me yet, Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? In other words, he's saying, you want to see the Father? You are looking right at him. I am the perfect imprint, the exact duplicate, the express image of God the Father. Now, I take it a step further. Not only spiritually and character-wise is he like God, exactly like God, but I believe in his form. 
He looks like the Father God. You know, the Father is the Spirit, but He has a humanoid form that sits on a throne. And I think Jesus looks just like His Daddy. Amen. That's what I believe. But if you disagree with me, that's okay. We can at least agree that in character and nature, Jesus was just exactly like the Father God. And that's the point he was trying to make here. Amen. So it seems to me that if I want to know what the Father is like, I have only to look at Jesus. If I want to know the priorities of heaven, all I got to do is look at the priorities of of Jesus when he was on the earth because Jesus reflected the Father and the wishes and the will of heaven in everything he did and everything he said. Amen? What did Jesus seem to care about the most when he is on the earth? If I know his priorities, then I know the priorities of the Father and I know the priorities of heaven. Amen? So I want to show you in the first five books of John that you can identify at least five of what I call top priorities of heaven. Either literally or figuratively, you can find it embedded in the text. Chapter 1 tells us to look to the Word who became flesh, that is Jesus, to find the answers. Amen? But moving on to chapter 2, we come across the wedding feast of Cana, which is chocked full of metaphors that illustrate vividly what I consider to be the two top priorities of heaven. Amen. So let's read it. But before I read it, I want to preface it with this statement because I want to drive home this point. The priorities of heaven were the priorities of Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, so it may be familiar, but it's going to be new to a lot of you. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Now it's my belief that Mary must have at least known the one who was hosting the wedding. Maybe it was a cousin, maybe it was family, but she was grieved in her heart because this was a major social faux pas to run out of wine. So she turned to her son and said, they have no wine in a way where Jesus knew she wanted him to do something about it. Amen. So Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. In other words, I would say it like this. What are you looking at me for? My hour has not come. It is not time for me to reveal myself to the nation of Israel. And I love this. It's a little side journey, a little rabbit path. Sometimes you go down rabbit paths, you catch some juicy rabbits. Amen. I think it is amazing that because his mama asked him to do something, he adjusted the chronology of heaven because he honored his mother so much he says, okay, we'll just do this just a little bit ahead of time because my mama wants me to. I, I don't know. It blesses me every time I read it. You know, Honor your mother and father, the scripture says. Jesus was well aware of that scripture, and he said, this is an opportunity for me to follow the word of God. Lord, let's back the schedule up just a little bit. Amen. 
we're going to work a miracle. Glory to God. Hallelujah. So Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, she was undaunted, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. What the heck is a firkin? We'll find out in just a minute. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. I tell you, Jesus knows how to throw a party. If he's going to provide wine, it's going to be the best wine. Amen. Verse 11 is very important. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Amen. So getting back to the firkin. A firkin is an old English measure of volume. It's equal to about nine imperial gallons. So if you figure in the density of water, two or three firkins, when you do the math, means that these stone pots held between 150 and 225 pounds of water, not including the weight of the stone pots. So these were massive pots. You know, you see some of the Bible stories and got these little pots about this high and I'm like no no read this story do the math come on you're better than that <laughs> and so one day I was reading this story and 2 Corinthians 4 7 just sort of come up in my spirit 2 Corinthians 4 7 says we have this treasure in earthen vessels because you know these stone pots really were earthen vessels that were formed from clay and then baked and hardened to be like stone. So they literally were stone, earthen vessels, and they were empty. Another thing that caught my attention was six. There were six water pots of stone, and six is the biblical number of man. So you put these two things together. We are like 65% water, okay? And you put this treasure in earthen vessels, Amen. And you consider that these things weigh between 150 and 225 pounds. These are perfect illustrations of human beings. Amen. But just like the empty stone pots which were used for purification, ritual washing, we are empty earthen vessels without the purifying water of God. Amen. But when you say yes to Jesus, God deposits something very valuable on the inside of you, a treasure that is the purifying water that flows from the throne of God himself. Amen. Do you see that? Have I gone over anybody's head? Amen. Isaiah 12, verse 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength. And my song, he has also become my salvation. 
Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So let me take this a little step further. When you say yes to Jesus, when you get saved, God deposits a well of salvation on the inside of you. Amen? But he doesn't want to stop there. Now, I don't have slides for this because it's just too many scripture, but I can, I can break it down for you. Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33 essentially say the same thing about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came along. He says, he says I baptize you with water. But the one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. So immediately after you're saved, you should ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hallelujah. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, Jesus changes the water in your well into wine. It's a way of saying that Jesus stirs or energizes the living water that's on the inside of you in such a way that it can no longer be contained in the well. Amen. It has to come out. Glory to God. Hallelujah. When this happens, the well becomes a powerful geyser, a spring that begins to bubble up or flow out of your innermost being. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said in John 7, 38, He that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Amen. Glory to God. A little bit of the bubbly coming out in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now his spirit begins to affect more than just you. It begins to affect all those around you, all those who come in contact with you. Remember, Jesus told the servants to draw out now. Draw out now. You know, when you get filled with the Spirit, it enables you to draw on what's inside of you and bring it out of you. Amen. You know, the governor of the feast, his job was to taste the wine and make sure it was fit for consumption so that everybody else could taste the wine and enjoy the wine. Amen? Listen, when you draw out, you pump out the geyser of living water that's on the inside of you, it begins to splash on everybody around you so they can taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. So I don't think it was an accident that John 2.11 declares that Jesus performed His very first miracle, turning water into wine, Because I believe he used that miracle to illustrate the two top priorities of heaven when it comes to mankind. Number one, Jesus wants you saved. He wants you born again. Number two, Jesus wants you filled with the Holy Ghost. He wants you saved because he wants to spend eternity with you. Amen. He wants you filled so you can go out in power and draw more men unto him so they can get saved, so they can get filled with the Holy Ghost. These are two priorities, I believe, are right at the top with the Father God. I remember in 1980 when I was in Pensacola, I was going through flight training with the Marines, and I read a book called Angels on Assignment by 
a couple named Charles and Francis Hunter. They've gone on to be with Jesus, faithful saints of God, moved in operations of the gifts of the Spirit, healing, just wonderful couple. But in that book, they chronicle the testimony of Pastor Roland Buck, who in the late 1970s had a series of angelic visitations over a period of months. It was regular. He said the reason he knew that they were getting ready to show up is his great Danes always started getting stirred, and they would start moving around the house, smelling around, and just anticipating something's going on, and then angels would appear. In one of these encounters, one of these angels said to Pastor Roland Buck, I'm here to declare to you God's two top priorities, the priorities of heaven. These are more important than any other things that God wants done on the earth. He said, number one, God wants men to be saved. He wants them to be born again. Number two, he wants them to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. And Pastor Buck said, number one, I'm okay with. I believe he was assembly of God. He said, but number two, you know, baptism of the Holy Ghost and tongues and all of that, that's very controversial. He said that to the angel. And I remember reading this. It was just awesome. He said the angel turned to him and gave him a stern look. And with his eyes, he said to him, it's not controversial with God. Okay? End of discussion. Amen. Glory to God. Woo! Praise the Lord. So let's continue reading in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is after the wedding feast in Canaan. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Amen. Can't you just see Jesus making a bullwhip and chasing out the sheep and chasing out the oxen and then chasing out the people and then turning over their tables? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and seen that happen. Here again, I believe Jesus is showing us some things literally and figuratively. Literally, he's angry and he's disgusted by the merchandising of the temple of his father God. He's angry. But figuratively, he shows us the next priority after getting men saved and getting them filled with the Spirit. Jesus wants to clean up your temple. Amen? And now that you're born again and filled with the Spirit, you have the tools if you will cooperate with Him to clean up yourself. Amen? He can deal with impure motives, impure thinking, and destructive habits if you'll let Him. Amen? 
you now have the power. This is why I feel sorry for people who are saved and not filled with the Spirit. Because they're saved, they're born again, but they don't have the power to live for God. Mm. This is why number one and number two, close on its heels. Number one, he wants men saved. Number two, he wants men filled with the Holy Ghost so they can live a holy life, so they can attract others to the gospel. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So it's a process of holiness that unfortunately will continue as long as we live in this body. But it's a process that helps you become more like his son Jesus, spirit, soul, and body. Amen. Real quickly, don't have time to teach on this, but whether you realize it or not, you are a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, And the very God of peace, and the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly, that means completely, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is concerned about your whole being, spirit, soul, and body. He starts with the spirit. That's where you get born again. And then he wants to help you work what's in the inside of you to the outside of you, from your spirit through your soul and finally affecting your body. Amen. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. So let's continue reading in the third chapter of John. We're getting ready to wrap this up. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 in the New King James Version. A lot of people are familiar with this story, but there's some things in here you might not have seen yet. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. New King James. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I love this story. I kind of have a visual image of how this went down. First of all, he came by night. That means he did not want anybody knowing he was a follower of Jesus. He was a closet follower of Jesus. So he comes to have a theological discussion with Jesus. Now, Master, Rabbi, we know that you are sent from God because nobody can do the miracles that you did unless they were sent from God. And Jesus cuts right to the chase. He says, verse 3 here, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, let's cut right through the dialogue and let's get to the reason I came here in the first place. I came here to give my life to enable men to one day be born again. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Nicodemus said to him, now this is an educated man. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, how many believe he is actually asking that as a serious question? I think he was dumbfounded, and that's the first thing that came up out of his mouth. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, you first have to be born physically, born of water. How many of you mothers out there know the first thing that happens before that baby comes out is your water breaks. You were born of water. You were born physically. But Jesus said, now because you're fallen from grace, you're in sin that was passed on to you by Adam 
You have to be born again spiritually. This is a completely different concept. I want you to understand, Nicodemus. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he goes off talking about the wind. I love this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me break that down for you. Here, Jesus reemphasizes the number one priority of heaven. He illustrated it earlier with the water pots of stone. Now he's using the wind as an illustration of what it's like when a man gets born again. Just like you cannot see the wind, but you can hear and see the effects of the wind, so it is in the spirit realm. When someone gets born again, they don't change on the outside. They change on the inside. And so you can't really see what's going on on the inside, just like you can't see the wind. You can't see the wind. You can hear the wind. You, you can look at the effects of the wind. You can see the trees move with the wind, the smoke move with the wind, the, the waves stirred by the wind. You can see that, but you can't really see the molecules compressing in these pressure waves as they come by. You can't see that. In the same sense, he's saying, listen, things may not change on the outside, but when a man is born again, sooner or later, you will hear the effects and see the effects of what happened on the inside of him. Amen. Glory to God. Glory. Finally, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You know, in the language that it was written, it basically says he's a new creation which never before existed with no precedent. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. Now listen, I don't profess to have a complete understanding of the mechanics of how this works, but I believe it. When you get born again, the Father doesn't go in there and just heal your dead spirit. He takes the old one out, and he puts a new one in. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. Amen. Glory to God, you got a brand new spirit man on the inside of you when you said yes to Jesus. And the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 24, he was created in righteousness and true holiness just like God. Now, I say it all the time because I need to hear it because it's hard for me to get my arms around the fact that there's something holy on the inside of me. Because I know myself and I know my flaws and I look at myself in the mirror and it's tough for me to say, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But you know what? It's what the Bible says. The more you say that, the more you're aware of that, the more it will change what's on the outside. Amen? It'll change your actions. It'll even change your body. Amen. Glory to God. All right. So in conclusion... This is my first and last closing. You know, some preachers have a closing, and then they have a second closing, and a third closing, and a fourth closing. <laughs> this is my first and last closing. Because I think this is a good place to wrap up our discussion of the priorities of Jesus, the ones we've covered so far. 
which are synonymous with the priorities of heaven. To put it simply, heaven wants you saved. Heaven wants you filled. Heaven wants you sanctified. Hallelujah. Spirit, soul, and body. Next week, we'll cover two more priorities of heaven for a total of five that I see in the first five chapters of John. Heaven wants you healed, and heaven wants you delivered. Amen. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Forrest's teaching on the priorities of heaven. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship, 10.30 for worship and service, and on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for spirit-filled prayer. If you would like to learn more about us, access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, and find Dr. Forrest's in-depth teaching notes, visit our website at GoFaithLife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington. <music>